Jersey Arts, the podcast. I'm Amber Edwards of State of the Arts and JN Public Television's weekly arts program. On our April show, I produced a story about Nell Painter, the eminent historian who decided to return to art school as an undergraduate at Rutgers after she retired as history professor emeritus at Princeton. Our segment focused on how Professor Painter was making the transition from scholar to working artist. But during our long and very interesting interview, she also talked about the new books she's writing, how creating art and researching history are alike and not, and how she manages to cram ever more information into an already packed mind. For instance, everything she had to memorize in beginning art history. And when I started memorizing artists and, you know, all these artists I'd never heard of, uh, I mean, who I take for granted now, uh, contemporary artists and also ancient artists, memorizing, memorizing, memorizing. And all of a sudden, I could remember everything. It was like somebody had gone through with grit and kind of cleared out my brains and, and all the synapses were just... I was amazed last year. People said, what do you like? Do you, do you like art school? I said, yes, I'm learning so much. I didn't believe I could learn. You know, how can you get so much more in there? And it's all just getting in there. And it's, um, I learned so much. I love it. Which is not to say it comes easy. Art, in fact, was something she had explored and rejected years ago. I was briefly an art major at Berkeley. But I got a C in sculpture. And I was one of those kids for whom everything was always so easy. You know, I always got good grades. I just went through. And to get a C, I I earned the C. I didn't do anything. And so my art training from way back from the 60s kind of dropped off because uh, it was so much easier for me to become an academic, to become a scholar. I come from an academic family. And that was, that you know, talk about coming easy. I mean, it didn't come easy, easy, easy. I've always had to work very hard. But I knew what to do. And so in the 60s, at one point, I simply couldn't keep up the investment in time and energy uh, in two, two different parts of my life. So I went the academic way. Uh, I became a knitter, but that's kind of... I hate to say it, but it's a poultry replacement. So I started actually with Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth, the abolitionist, my uh, fourth book, I think. Sojourner Truth didn't read and write. So I had to learn a whole new set of skills to try to get to her because she didn't, everything I know of her in words is what other people wrote down for their own purposes. What did Sojourner Truth project for her own purposes, photographs. So I went over to the magnificent art history library here at Princeton, and I sat and I read books on the history of photography and the criticism of photography. And that's what did it. Sojourner Truth, A Life, a Symbol, was published in 1997. Her next book, Southern History Across the Color Line, came out in 2001. It challenged the common assumption that Southern blacks and whites inhabited entirely different spheres and examines how black and white lives have intersected throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Then, in 2006, she returned to what she calls the rhetoric of the image with 
Creating Black Americans, which explores how African-American artists have interpreted their own history through creative expression. And now, even while taking a full undergraduate course load, she is at work on The History of White People. The History of White People, it's a U.S. history. It's a history of how we think about white people uh, as a race in the United States. But it goes back to ancient Greece and so forth because it's a kind of parallel idea. Our history is, is deeply racialized, but it's white racialized. So I'm running along beside that saying, you know, sort of, here's what Herodotus said, and here's what the Greeks actually thought. And then when you get down to the 19th century, you discover what scholars were saying about the Greeks and so forth. But the heart and soul of the book is after 1795, when the, I, the word Caucasian got uh, applied to white people. Which is a word that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, it, it makes a lot of sense if you go back to 1795, which I try to do and under, you know, explain why this word comes up. But that's one of the, the terms that it's not, as we historians say, historicized. Usually people say, yeah, yeah, Caucasian. But without saying, why? <laughs> Why Caucasian? And, and most people, are, especially white people, are embarrassed that they don't know. Like, we should know. Why should you know that? Anyway, in the United States, we're so used to thinking of race as people who are raced, that is to say black people or others. And then white people are just people. They're just individuals. They're just normal. They're just natural. They're middle class. They don't have to worry about it. But there's a gigantic literature on the white races. So what I will show you is how the concept of whiteness, and sometimes it isn't even useful because people, scholars or writers like Emerson, want to get deeper in because the idea of white is too big. The idea of Caucasian is too big. So the part I'm working on right now, which is Ralph Waldo Emerson, the founding father of American white race theory, who was an Anglo-Saxonist. So he doesn't talk about it, but behind him are all these poor Irish people. And so he is elevating his Americans uh, above the rabble and praising them and loving them as Saxons. It's tribalism. Right. Yeah, but the point that I want to make is that the tribe changes shape. And sometimes there's three tribes, and sometimes there's eight tribes. And uh, In the 1990s, there was one tribe. Sort of from the 60s or so, there was one tribe of white people. It's just all kinds of white people just thrown into the hopper of white people. And after the history of white people, she's promised a book about personal beauty. There, what I want to do is... It's not exactly a history because our thinking about beauty just kind of goes in circles. It doesn't go anywhere. It kind of wavers. And right now, the in vogue idea is that what is beautiful is physical. It has to do with evolution. So it's evolutionary biology. And so if um, your husband thinks you're beautiful, that's because he sees in you the possibility of having uh, a lot of offspring, yeah. <laughs> basically. It's about sex. And people have thought that a lot. There's a lot to that. Yes. There's a lot to that. Uh, 
but that's not all there is to it. So I want to start with um, the, the prevailing idea about, well, evolutionary biology is the prevailing idea about beauty, which reduces it to sex, success or failure in mating. And then I want to go into the jungle of how we fiddle with appearance, how we judge it, how we fix our noses, how we straighten our hair, how we fix our eyes, all that stuff. And I'm trying really hard to keep fashion in its place. For more information about the arts in New Jersey, visit JerseyArts.com. Jersey Arts, the podcast, is a production of State of the Arts. Watch it on NJN Public Television Fridays at 8.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 11.30 p.m. Individual stories can be seen anytime on NJN.net. The New Jersey State Council on the Arts is proud to co-produce State of the Arts. The New Jersey State Council on the Arts, encouraging excellence in the arts since 1966. Additional support was provided by the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, supporting cultural, educational, and environmental initiatives that make our world more livable. I'm Amber Edwards.